Amen. We gather to uh, acknowledge God is God alone, and we gather in this space to worship and acknowledge that as we begin uh, this brand new week. And also want to say a word to our fathers. It is Father's Day, so we want just to welcome uh, all of our dads here today. It's also June 19th. Uh, to, on uh, Monday, we celebrate a national holiday called Juneteenth, which commemorates the day enslaved African Americans received their freedom. And so on this day, we're acknowledging our fathers and freedom for all. And ultimately, we know that, uh, that God alone is our heavenly father and that ultimate freedom comes as a result of our relationship with Jesus. And so we're excited about that. I also want to mention one other day that's coming up at the end of uh, next month, uh, at the end of July. It's a few weeks, of course, before, but it's not too early to begin thinking about our next vision offering. Uh, and, and one of the ministries that our vision offering supports is Healing Hands International. Uh, my wife, Jana, just got back from Ghana. Jana, would you come on up at this time? Jana just got back from Ghana, and she's going to tell us a little bit about this picture you're going to see right now, a little bit about some of the things that she experienced uh, while she was in Ghana, and some of the good things that Healing Hands was involved in. But the exciting thing is that when we give on those vision offering Sundays, those quarterly vision offering Sundays, we're going to ministries just like this. So Jana, you look like you have a lot of joy on your face. What was happening during this, at this moment? Well, so th at this moment, we happened to, we got to be there when they hit water at a village in northern Ghana that's an hour and a half by car from the nearest bigger village. Um, we drove out there on a walking path. We drove in our cars on this walking path, and we got back there, and the chief of this village, there was a huge celebration, huge celebration. And the chief of the village said, my father and my grandfather could have never dreamed of having clean water. And now here in my life, we have clean water. And now we can dream of having education and having health services and having other things because without clean water, you don't have those opportunities. So uh, on behalf of this village, and I wish that I could have taken you all with me, but I want to say thank you. Thank you for um, helping provide clean water and bringing it in Jesus' name so that they can come to know him, the true giver of life and the living water. Thank you so much, Janet, for sharing that. Thank you so much. Let's give her a... Yeah. Now, here's the exciting thing about uh, what we do with ministries like Healing Hands. It's one thing for people to get water, and that is awesome, and that is needed, and that's exciting. But the other thing is, a lot of times, a church will be planted in those villages. And so, so often, people come, they're able to get clean water, and then they're able to experience living water through Jesus. And we have a lot of stories to share about that as well. And so we will share some of those stories in time. But mark your calendars for July 31st. On that Sunday, uh, we'll have our, our vision offering. Now today we continue our series called Life-Changing Conversations with Jesus. And in contrast to the utter joy that you see on the faces of these folks, in contrast to that, today we're going to hear a conversation that Jesus has with someone who was born blind. Can you imagine what it would be like to never have, the, have, have your sight, 
to never be able to see a sunset or a sunrise, to never be able to look into the face of your grandkids or maybe a wife or your own children. And it's that individual that Jesus has this very fascinating conversation with. Now, in John chapter 9, and that's where we are today, so if you have your Bibles, you might want to open to that passage. One of the key themes that we will see all through this chapter is the idea of of blindness. And so would you do something for me right now? Would you take just a moment and and close your eyes? Go ahead, just just take a moment and close your... We're not going to do anything to you. Just, Just close your eyes. Imagine what it would be like to live like that. To never be able to see, never be able to do the things we often wish to do. Open your eyes. You may open your eyes at this point. Thank you so much. Some of you were peeking. I I saw that. But imagine what it would be like to never be able to see. That's what this man is like, what he experiences in John chapter 9. But here's the irony of this story that we will see in a moment. Even though he couldn't see, he's the only one in the story who in the end, other than Jesus who in the end will be able to see. Eventually, Jesus opens his eyes and he's able to see physically. But the more exciting thing is, Jesus opens his eyes and he's able to truly see spiritually. But every person that we're introduced to in this story, in one way or another, is blind. And so the first people that we're introduced to are Jesus' disciples. You might think they've spent a lot of time with Jesus. You might think that they're able to see clearly, but we'll see they, in fact, are blind. Now, we'll come back to them in just a moment, but I want to introduce some other people in John chapter 9 that are also blind. And so the next group of people that we come to, it's his neighbors, the blind man's neighbors. Now, we read about them in verses 8 through 12. And so Jesus heals this man born blind, and so then he goes home and he, he sees his neighbors, these are the men and women who knew him, who watched him as he was uh, begging for food every day, and now he is blind. And so here's what they say to him. Put that on the screen right now. Okay, there, there we go. They say, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And others said, no, he only looks like him. But Jesus said, I am am or rather the blind man said i am the man i I now am able to see oh i've been blind but it's it's jesus who is able to heal me now i want you to know these neighbors they're they're blind in a sense they're blind to the possibilities that jesus can do something miraculous they're blind to the possibilities that that this man now can have a bright future they're blind to the possibility that god will work in their midst And the past doesn't have to look like the future. And you know, some of us in this room may experience a similar kind of blindness. We just couldn't imagine that God could do something this powerful, this amazing, or this miraculous. But there's another group of people that we're introduced to in the story. And this group, I would argue, they should be the people who, who should be able to see most clearly. And yet, as we will see they were more blind than just about anyone. And so down in verse 13, this formerly blind man is brought to the Pharisees. And of course, the Pharisees are all interested. They, they want to know what's happened. And so Jesus tells the story. 
And he, and he said, or rather, the blind man tells the story. He says how that, that Jesus spit on the ground, he made some mud, he takes that mud and he puts it on my eyes. He told me to go and wash, and I did. I went to the pool of Siloam, I washed, and I came home seeing. You would think these religious leaders would have been excited. Here's this man who could not see, and now for the first time in his life, he's able to see. But instead of being excited about this, the Pharisees, they're quibbling over the fact that it happened on the Sabbath. They think Jesus has somehow broken the Sabbath. They have forgotten that the Sabbath was created for us to be a blessing to us. And so here they are now in front of the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus has blessed this man in incredible ways. And yet couldn't get past the fact that in their paradigm he had done this wonderful thing on the wrong day. They're blind. And friends, some of us may be blind in a similar way. Maybe we have a hard time seeing outside of the box we've created for ourselves. And if we're not careful, we can be so, so harsh and mean and uncaring as we see these religious leaders were in this story. And then in verses 18 and 19, we're introduced to another group of people who were blind. The Pharisees called mom and dad together, and so they have some questions for mom and dad. And here's what they say. They say to them, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? Now, mom and dad respond. They say, yes, he is our son. And yes, he was. We know that he was born blind. But, but now that he can see, we, we don't really know how all that happened. Understand, mom and dad are blinded by fear. Because they, they know if they acknowledge that it was Jesus who, in fact, healed their son, they would be put out of the synagogue. Now, understand what this means. This doesn't mean that they would, you know, have to leave their church. You know, they're a part of Deadwood Drive, and now they're going to have to go, go find spiritual life over at Central. It wasn't that. It was much more than that. They were going to be put out of the community, put out of the community of, of faith. This was a, a big thing. And so instead of, of being um, acknowledging what has happened and what Jesus did, because of their fear, they don't speak up for their own son. Everybody in the story is blind. But this brings us back to the beginning of the story. John chapter 9, in verse 1, we read that there's this man who is born blind and Jesus sees him. We wonder, what does Jesus see? Jesus sees a child of God who had an incredible need, who needed to be healed. Jesus sees this as a wonderful opportunity for the work of God to be displayed. The disciples, they walk by and they, they see him, but their sight isn't as clear as Jesus' sight. And so they ask him a question. They say in verse number two, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? When they look at this individual they don't see a child of God in need of healing what they see when they look at him is they see a theological question a theological logical conundrum uh, they they see a riddle 
to be solved. And so they're, they're asking a question that maybe many of us ask. Why are these bad things happening? Or sometimes we will phrase it like this. Why do bad things happen to good people? And so there's the traditional answer to that question. It is, well, we must have done something wrong or bad. Now, that's the view that Job's friends, you know the story of Job in the Old Testament, how all these bad things happen to Job, and so Job's friends come to him, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, and, and they start off great because they're quiet. They sit with him for seven days. He's experienced all this bad stuff. They sit with him. They, they care for him for seven days. They get in trouble when they start to speak. And so for the next 20-odd chapters, they're in dialogue with their friend Job. They're trying to convince him there's something in his life, something that he's done wrong, something that he's done bad, because bad things don't just happen to good people. That's the traditional religious answer. But the, the secular answer isn't much better. And the secular answer is this. There's no good reason. A good God would not allow this. So either he does not exist, or if he does exist, he must be cruel. And that answer doesn't help either. That answer doesn't give us a lot of confidence or help. And the fascinating thing in John chapter 9 is that Jesus doesn't take either posture. He does not give a simple answer to a very complex question. Oh, the Lord could have said many things. He could have described the situation in a lot of ways, but he chooses not to do that. Instead of dwelling on the theological puzzle, what he does is he, he very practically decides to help this man. And so Jesus tells this to his disciples in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, if we're not careful, we can over-translate verse 3. I like this translation. It's from the English Standard Version. The NIV is, I don't like it quite as well. And what we end up doing, if we over-translate it, it's almost like we, we want to say, well, well, God, God did this so that now he can do some, some good thing. That's really not the point. I, I like Eugene Peterson's translation in the message of these, of these uh, words. He says, Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There's no such cause effect here. Look instead to what God can do. That's what we learn from this passage from Jesus. There's no cause effect here, but watch for what God can do through this difficult situation. The question of why do bad things happen to good people, it's a vexing, difficult question. In fact, it's the number one reason why people are blind to God. Why people can't see the Lord and sometimes reject God. And offering, when we're struggling with these sorts of questions, and this is one of those difficult conversations we will have with people. When we struggle with these sorts of questions, if we're not careful, we can make the same mistake that the disciples made. We try to make sense of the theological puzzle. And yet I'm convinced if we want to give people help, and comfort will resist the urge to theologize the meaning or or render judgment or talk about those sorts of things our role is is not so much to interpret but our role is to comfort and to remind 
And so recently I, I've been reading through John Mark Hicks' book, which I would recommend, called And Yet Will I Trust Him. It's a book based on the book of Job. And, and John Mark lists five reminders, five things that we need to think about as we're helping people as they're going through difficulty, struggling, instead of trying to interpret or become an armchair theologian, instead of doing all of that, he said, let's just, when the time is right, when the opportunity presents itself, let's remind people of these things. And so the first thing we remind people of is the unrelenting love of God. And that's what we find all through Scripture. It's this amazing story of the love of God. We read about this amazing, and the Hebrew word for it is hesed. It's this committed, faithful love of God. And even though Adam and Eve turn away from God, what does God do? He responds to Adam and Eve in such gracious and loving and faithful ways. We read the story of the nation of Israel through the, the, all of the Old Testament. And though Israel turns away time after time, we're reminded over and over again of how much God loves his people. In fact, we read that beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 15 where, where God in essence says, though, though we can't imagine how a mother who has a nursing child could turn away from her, her child, Though we can't imagine that, it's like God even more so would never turn away from his own people. But the climax of the love of God in Scripture is when we come to the New Testament and we see Jesus on a cross. And Paul describes it like this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John Mark Hicks, in his book, he shares his story. He talks about how he, he lost his first wife at a very young age, unexpectedly. And then they eventually, he remarries and has a son, and his son has a terminal illness, and his son would eventually die. And he would also eventually, all the stress put on his marriage, he would lose a marriage. And he says, when doubt creeps in about God's love, I look to the cross. And then he makes this powerful statement. He says, I can stand beside the coffin of my wife and doubt God's love but I cannot kneel at the foot of the cross and doubt it and so we first remind people of the unrelenting love of God but something else we remind people of is the inviting presence of God when we experience loss pain difficulty it's not, it feels like God is nowhere to be seen in fact, we often, we often cry out like we read through the book of Psalms. The psalmist gives voice to our heart when the psalmist says, Why, God, are you so far away from me? Instead of the presence of God, we experience much of the absence of God. And one of the things that the psalms help us to see, it's okay to cry out to God. It's okay to have a, a level of honesty with our Lord. The psalms give voice to that honesty. But the truth of the matter is, even though we cry out, as Jesus cried out when he was on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though we might feel that way, understand, God is our refuge. God, God is the one we run to. God is present. And I love that passage in the book of Psalms, where the psalm in Psalm 34, David says this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
We need to remind people of the inviting presence of God. But there's something else we remind people of, and that is the caring empathy of God. You know, when we experience loss and pain, first thing we want to do is we want to do something. I'm looking at Jay and Judy down front, and I know Jay lost his brother just last week. What a difficult and hard thing that was. And, you know, we don't know what to say. And oftentimes, oftentimes the best thing we can say is nothing. Just, just be present and just say, I love you, and I'm, I'm so sorry this has happened to you. And we try our best to be sympathetic. But, you know, when we've gone through something with another, like another person has gone through, our, our sympathy takes another step and it becomes more empathetic. I want you to know that's how God is with us. The story of Scripture is not that we have this unmoved mover, this God who created the world and then moved away from the world. The story of Scripture is we had a God who cares so deeply for us that he weeps with us. The story of the New Testament is God has come near. That's the story of Jesus. And I love that that story found in the New Testament in John chapter 11 where, where Jesus loses a loved one. He loses one of his best friends, a man by the name of Lazarus. And as he comes to see them, though he knows he has the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, and in fact, he will do that. When he looks at Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, what does Jesus do? It says in John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. It's the kind of God we have. We need to be reminded of that. We experience loss and pain. We need to remind people of the caring empathy of God. But there's another thing we're to remind people of, number four, and that is we're to remind people of the ultimate victory, ultimate sovereignty, excuse me, the unlimited sovereignty of God. See, at times we wonder in this chaotic world, is God really in charge? I appreciate it a moment ago, Rick Thorne's prayer, because Rick talked about how God was in charge. And that is the truth. The story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that, that the story is going somewhere, that God is engaged, that God is involved, and ultimately God's in charge. We look at our chaotic world and we think, is there someone who's still on the throne? I'm sure the Christians in the first century must have wondered the same thing. As we read the book of Revelation, as the first century Christians were being persecuted by the powers that be, John reminds them in Revelation chapter 4 that God is still on the throne. And I want to remind you of that, that God is still on the throne. And the things that happen in our world or happen in our lives are not good, but God is working in and working through all of those things to bring about his good will. But there's one final thing we need to remind people of. Number five, it's the ultimate victory of God. The epitome of fallenness is death. God didn't create us to die. Every one of us in this room will experience it, barring an early return of Jesus. We'll experience it because those we love will pass from this earth, and it is hard. It's the product 
of our parents, Adam and Eve, they committed sin, and death was injected into our world, but death is an alien intruder. Death is this, this enemy. And death doesn't get the final word. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 describes death as just that, an enemy that's been defeated by Jesus. We know the ultimate victory of God. The ultimate victory of God is not that we will live in this present state forever. No, we'll pass from this earth because of sin. But understand, one day we'll experience resurrection. One day we'll get a brand new resurrected body that's not susceptible to sin and disease and death and depression and addiction and all the things that just absolutely break our heart in this world. We'll get a brand new body that functions like God and tits it, uh, wants it to function and we'll live in a new environment that the Old Testament prophets call the new heaven and new earth. And we know in the new heaven and new earth, everything will be made right. I'm convinced a lot of times we don't tell the story very well. We've, we've used to tell this story about how we die and go to heaven and we imagine it like we're disembodied spirits on clouds with harps and that sort of thing. That could be no further from the truth. We die and our spirit goes to be with, with God in paradise. But one day when God says it's right, he'll say to his son, it's time. And the son will come back and our bodies will be raised up from the dead. And we get a brand new body. Oh, now we have the intruder of death hanging over all of us. We try to forget about it, but the intruder of death hangs over all of us. But one day, we'll get a new body, and no longer will we be worried about that intruder. And then we'll be in the new heaven and the new earth where everything is right. And I love how Jesus, when he talks to his disciples, before he leaves them, he says, he gives them this beautiful feast, this meal. And he says, I want you to have this communion. I want you to have this meal that will kind of anticipate. But understand, one day we're going to be together and I'm going to celebrate this wonderful feast with you in the, in the kingdom, in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, what that does tell me is sometimes we ask, will there be eating in the new heaven? Yes, there will. Jesus helps us to understand that. That is good news, is it not? And I can tell you there will be no calories. Isn't that wonderful? You can eat all you want. And you'll have that svelte figure shape you've always wanted in the new heaven. Everything will be set right. That's the ultimate victory of God. And friends, we need to remind one another of that beautiful truth. But while we're on this earth, we struggle. When our son Reed was just five years old, he was playing with some of the boys at Chase's soccer game. And of course, of course, as, as moms and dads, you know, we were engaged in Chase's soccer game. We were watching what's going on. But the little boys were playing back behind. And somehow they got a lawn chair. And somehow they were playing around with that lawn chair. And one boy jumped on it and it closed on Reed's thumb. I'll never forget that blood-curdling cry I heard. And while I was engaged in that soccer game I heard a cry and moms and dads you know you know your children's cry I heard that cry and immediately I turned and there was Reed he's crying that thumb was degloved from the top knuckle up bone exposed 
I'll never forget his cry, and I'll never forget what he said. And I ran over to him, and I scooped him up in my arms. And Reed looked at his thumb. At five years old, he said, what are we going to do? And then he said, why, Daddy? Why? Let me tell you what my son did not want in that moment. He, he did not want an explanation. Uh, he didn't want some discussion about why bad things happen to us. What he wanted and what he needed was for his daddy to pick him up and hold him close to my chest and pat his back and say, son, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Daddy's here. Daddy's here. God, like a good father, he doesn't, he doesn't give us reasons or answers. He goes one better. He gives us himself. See, God's, God's answer to suffering and why these bad things happen is not some sort of explanation. Friends, it's the incarnation. God doesn't just give us answers. He gives us something better. He gives us his presence. He is the answer. See, one of the things I know about God, God knows suffering. He knows nails. He knows a crown of thorns. He knows what it's like to watch as his son, as nails are driven through his feet and through his hands. He knows what it's like to watch as his son experiences the ridicule of a crowd and experiences the spiritual and emotional pain of bearing the sins of the world, the sins of my sin, uh, the, 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 the taking my sin and your sin. You see, because of Jesus, suffering and loss do not get the final word. For we believe in an empty tomb. And just as suffering and death did not get the final word for Jesus, it does not get the final word for us either. And so during our pain and during our struggle, understand we have a God who comes near. We have a God who comes close to us and picks us up and draws us close to his chest and rubs our back and he says daddy's here daddy's here today if you feel distant from your father I want you to know your heavenly father I, I don't know about your earthly father but if you feel distant from your heavenly father you have a good father a wonderful father who will run to meet you if you have a need his arms are wide open and he desires to be close to you I don't know where you are on this Father's Day but our Heavenly Father wants to be near you and today if you feel a distance if you feel if you don't feel close to him if you you've never responded in faith to Jesus never had your sins washed away and received the gift of the Holy Spirit or if you have some other need we would love to help you today we're here to serve and bless and help you if we can come down front as we stand and sing this song of encouragement